great day to be together as a church. It's a great day to be in our series, Jesus Praise, which is from John 17. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to John 17. We're going to be there in just a moment. John 17 is a look at the last prayer that Jesus lifts up before his crucifixion, where he mainly prays for his followers. He also prays for himself the first few verses, but mainly this is a prayer for his followers. And this is the reason why most people call this prayer the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And it serves for us two purposes. It encourages us to understand the heart of Jesus for his people. If we're wanting to know how much Jesus cares about us, his brothers and sisters, we can go to John chapter 17 and we can read the words of Jesus from the heart of Jesus. The second purpose of John 17 is we get to learn some great theology. We get to learn some great theology. We've already looked somewhat at the theology of the glory of God. We've looked at the theology of eternal life. And in verse 2, Brother James briefly looked at God's sovereignty over salvation, which is now being expanded upon in verses 6 through 8, which is what we're going to be looking at this morning. The God's sovereignty over salvation. Now, when we think about God's sovereignty over salvation, there is a phrase that needs to come to our mind from John chapter 17. It is used no less than five times in John chapter 17. And it is the phrase, whom you gave me. It is used no less than five times in our text, whom you gave me. It is Jesus saying these words to the Father. He uses it in verse 2, verse 6, verse 11, and verse 24. Now, he uses it about his present disciples, those at the time that are with him, hearing him pray this prayer. But 24, verse 24, lets us know that this also applies to all future followers of Jesus that would believe the gospel based upon the apostles' testimony. So all Christians that will be gathered up are those that the Father gave the Son. There is a group of people that God gave Jesus. And it is those people that Jesus is now bringing eternal life to. So the natural question... The natural question is, who are these people that God gave to Jesus? Who are they? Another way to say this is, who are the elect? Who are the elect of God? Who are these people that God gave to Jesus? Now, in one aspect, we cannot know. God did not put a big E on people's foreheads that let us know who the elect of God are. Okay? They don't wear shirts that say, I am one of the elect. Preach the gospel to me. Um, we're not 
given, we're not privy to looking into the Lamb's book of life where the names were written down before the foundation of the world, Revelation 13, 8. That has not been, that privilege has not been given to us to delve and look into it. So in this respect, we cannot know who the elect of God are. But in another aspect, in another respect, we can know the marks of those whom the Father gave the Son. And that is laid out in our text this morning. There, Jesus basically says there is going to be four marks, four things that will result in people's lives if they are one of those that the Father gave the Son. So we can't walk around and look at people and say, okay, that person's the elect, that person's not, that person's the elect, that person's not. We don't have the ability to do that. But what we do have the ability to do, first and foremost, looking at our own lives, is to say, all those that the Father gave the Son will have these four marks, these four things happen to them if they truly have been given by the Father to the Son. At some point in their life, these four things will happen to them. Okay? And that's what we're going to look at. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8 this morning from John chapter 17. And then we'll look at these four markers, these four marks of those that the Father gave to the Son. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. Amen. You may be seated. So right off the bat, looking at verse 6, it lets us know all those that the Father gave the Son, Jesus is going to manifest something to these people. Jesus is going to reveal something to these people. He's going to make something known to these people. He's going to show something to these people. That is literally what the word manifest means. It means to reveal, to make known, or to show. So Jesus... In his ministry and in the work of the Holy Spirit afterwards, reminding us of Jesus is going to manifest something or someone to those the Father gave him. And it states what that is. I have manifested your name. So Jesus' ministry... To, to the people of God, to those the Father gave him, is to manifest God's name to these people. In biblical literature, a name meant a lot more than really it does today in our culture. A name in biblical literature represented the totality of a person. It represented the person's character, the person's nature, and the person's attributes. So when Jesus says, I have come to reveal your name, Father, to the people you gave me, what he's saying is, I have come to reveal your character, your nature, 
and your attributes. I have come to reveal to these people that you gave me all that you are. That's what he's come to do. Now, let me ask you, well, let me, let me say this before I ask the question. And those people who see it, right? Those people, when he manifests it, to truly see it is to see it with spiritual eyes. Okay? Which means it is, it is an illumination of your life. It is to truly see salvation. So when he says, I have manifested your name to those you have given me, what he's saying is, I'm going to show them your character. I'm going to show them your nature. I'm going to show them your attributes. And they are going to see them with spiritual eyes and believe in you. Okay? This isn't just so they have intellectual knowledge of some attributes that you have. This is an illumination of the heart. Does that make sense? Right? That's different than you just getting information and plugging it into your brain. That's not what he means here. This is something that's going to go into the depths of these people. Now here's the question. How did Jesus manifest the name of God? How did Jesus manifest the name of God? Did Jesus go around teaching systematic theology out of a book to people and say, okay, uh, number one attribute of God, you know, we did the attributes of God around here, right? And we did a systematic study of the attributes of God. We were able to take one attribute of God and work through Scripture to show you how the totality of Scripture talks to this attribute. But that's not what Jesus did. So the question then remains, how did Jesus manifest the Father and his name and the name of God to these people. I would argue he did it, that Jesus did it by showing his own character, his own nature, and his own attributes. John 12, 45, Jesus says, Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. John 14, 9, Whoever sees me has seen the Father. Colossians 1.15, Paul writes, He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity bodily dwelled. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. So if you want to see what God the Father is like, who do you look to? Jesus. Jesus came and manifested who God was in himself. That's what they were like, you know, in John 14, they were like, Jesus, show us the Father. And Jesus says, have I not been with you all these years? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He, does, he doesn't mean that he is the Father. He is saying my attributes, my character, my nature, who I am in the Godhead is seeing God. When you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one in that way. So when he manifests God the Father, he does it by living his own life. Now, it's just like what we're supposed to do with Jesus, correct? Is that not what we're supposed to do? Be the hands and feet of Jesus, be the manifestation of Jesus, be the body of Jesus. When people look at us, what do we want them to see? Jesus. We want to live based upon uh, who Jesus has made us to be so that we are literally called the body of Christ. We want people to see that. Jesus came to manifest who God was to the people. And this manifestation, making the name of God known, is a fulfillment of Isaiah 52, 6, where Isaiah says, therefore, quoting God, therefore my people shall know my name. And Psalm twenty two twenty two, 22, 
that the writer of Hebrews uses in reference to Jesus says, I will tell of your name to my brothers. The writer of Hebrews uses Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two to state, Jesus came and made the name of God known to his brothers. And we could certainly add to his sisters. So the first mark of someone who has been given from the Father to the Son is that the name of God has been manifested in their life in such a way that it has brought spiritual understanding of who God is. Okay? It's the illumination of salvation into one's life. Secondly, the second mark of those who have been given by the Father to the Son is that they have been taken out of the world. Now, look at it here. It says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. The world here, when it says I've taken them out of the world, the world here means the evil, godless, ruled system that opposes the kingdom of God. He's not talking about the earth in general. He's not talking about nature, like trees, and I've taken you out of trees, and I've taken you out of, you know, uh, rivers, and that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, I've taken you out of this system. I've taken you out of this godly, uh, 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 Satan-ruled system, and I've, I've taken you out of that. And Jesus is saying, the elect are taken out of the world. They have been drawn out of the world, pulled out of the world. In John 6, Jesus teaches, no one can come to me unless the Father who sends me draws him. Draws him from where to where? Out of darkness, out of the worldly system, out of evil, into glorious light, into a relationship with Jesus. So, Here, the elect have been taken out of the world, drawn out of their sin, drawn out of the world, which brings us to an important theological word, sanctification. Now, the word sanctification is the act of setting apart. If you're sanctifying someone, you are setting them apart. You're you're removing them uh, apart. You're making them holy. Now, this comes in Scripture in three Specific ways. One, it comes in eternity past. Two, it comes at the moment of salvation. And three, it comes with future glory. So I'm going to talk about each of those for a moment. Number one, sanctification in eternity past. Look at what Jesus says in verse 6 again. I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were. The question here is, when were they gods? When did they belong to God? It's certainly before Jesus is praying this prayer, right? If Jesus is praying the prayer now and he says yours they were, that means that we're at least going back to this point. But as I referenced earlier, the Bible tells us that the names of God's elect people are written down in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. 
So these people that God the Father is giving to God the Son were gods in eternity past. They belonged to God in eternity past. Yours they were before they ever even existed. You set them apart for something. You set them apart for holiness. You set them apart to bring God glory. These people have always belonged to God. In Acts chapter 18, there's this, there's this very interesting story. Paul is in the city of Corinth, and he has seen very little fruit of his gospel preaching. It's not that there isn't any. There certainly is some, but it's, it, it hasn't manifested the kind of fruit he thought. He was, he's getting pushed back. He's getting persecution. And so Paul decides, I'm out of here. Like, I'm not going to stay here anymore. I'm leaving Corinth because this is just not working out the way I thought it was supposed to. And then we read this in verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 18. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. Go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. God is telling Paul, Paul, I already have some of my people in the city that need to hear the gospel and get saved. They're already mine. Before they're saved, they're already God's. Why? Because in eternity past, he sanctified them, set them apart for his purposes. Okay, so inside of of time, when Jesus is praying this prayer, they were already God's. And you can have all kinds of debates about how that came about, but you cannot escape the reality that all of those that are going to get saved have belonged to God from eternity past. Now, what about the, the moment of salvation? There's another way the Bible talks about sanctification, and that's at the moment of salvation. And this is how I, I, I think... This is kind of going in order of the, the way that we use them. We use sanctification in eternity past the least. Then we use sanctification in the moment of salvation next. And then the way that we normally use it is going to be the third point. But we, we do understand this from a theological level. When you got saved inside of time, you were taken out of the system of the world. Right? You were removed from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So inside of time, right? We're chosen before. We're God's people before. But inside of time, there is a practical removing from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus that has to take place. And that takes place at regeneration. That takes place when God changes us, when he saves us. We, we now put our faith in Christ. When that happens, at that moment, we are set apart from the world. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the, that's the second way sanctification is used. And by the way, when, we do, when God does that, we, are, we become citizens of heaven. So the moment we are saved, inside of time, we are set apart out of the world. Then third, 
the way that I think most of us are used to using this, is talking about sanctification and the growth of practical holiness. We experience as we become more and more like Jesus. We become sanctified. And what it means is we're becoming more and more less like the world. We're, we're set apart from it, but that doesn't mean practically we're, we're not like the world anymore. There may be all kinds of things that God has got to work out of my life that i got to kill in my flesh so that I am moving from glory to glory looking like Jesus more and more all the time. And so what happens is, is that in the past, God chose us in eternity past, all right, for specific purposes to fulfill God's specific plan. He gives them to the Son. Inside of time in the Son, we are sanctified and taken out of the world. And then we are being sanctified in our constant moving more and more into the image of Jesus until we are finally, completely looking like Jesus. Can't wait. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but of this world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. To put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, creating after the, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Ephesians 1.4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So the phrase, out of the world, carries all three of those aspects. We were chosen out of the world before we ever existed. Our names were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Inside of time, God sanctifies us by taking us out of the kingdom of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of His Son. Whereby, once we are citizens of heaven, we are living this life, moving from glory to glory, abandoning the world and the flesh and all the things that are fading away and we're pursuing that which is eternal. That is the second marker of those who the Father has given the Son. You will be taken out of the world. Third, the third mark of the elect is that they have kept the Word and the words of God. Jesus says in verse 6, And they have kept your Word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words, verse 7, or verse 8, the words that you gave me. Notice the singular and the plural. Did you see that? Singular. They have kept your word. Plural. And the words that you gave me. So there are words and there are word. The word Kept here means to lay hold of or to secure, to, to grab onto. Um, when I was down in Corpus this last week, uh, there was an illustration used by their pastor at Julian Amps Church, Yorktown. Uh, and he talked about the record right now for just the standing um, hang. Just jumping up on a bar and hanging on a bar. 
I would probably last, I mean, I, it, y'all, if I could make it a minute, it would be like ridiculous. Um, I can't even remember what the record was, but it, it was, I mean, it's almost, I think it was 40 minutes, something ridiculous like that. I mean, somebody Google it. You Googling it right now, Josh? Josh, Googling it. it it's, it's ridiculous. 80 minutes, 80 minutes of just hanging. The idea of keeping the word and keeping the words is this idea of clinging to them, of gripping them and not letting them go, of seizing them as your own. Matthew Henry writes as he's describing this word kept, he says, they have received the words which I gave them as the ground receives the seed, as the earth drinks in the rain. They attended to the words of Christ, apprehended in some measure the meaning of them, and were affected with them. They received the impression of them. The word was to them an engrafted word. Now, what does the singular word means? This is equivalent to the gospel. They have kept your word. They have believed the gospel. Here the elect receives the gospel as the ground receives the seed, as the earth drinks the rain. They are taking the gospel and it is engrafting into them. It is becoming a part of who they are. This is not, again, an intellectual knowledge. It is not define the gospel for me. Okay, it's this and it's this and it's this and it's this. No. This is, yes, intellectually understanding those things, but then taking those in as a part of you. You see the difference? They've kept the gospel. They've secured the gospel in their life. They've grabbed a hold of the gospel. They've apprehended it, and they've brought it in as, a, as, a, as the ground takes the seed and the ground drinks up the water. Nothing less than embracing the gospel. The plural... The words that you gave me are equivalent to the precepts and the commands of Christ. These are the teachings of Jesus. Once again, understanding the elect are receiving them, meaning that they know them in a spiritual sense, which leads to obedience. You can know what Jesus said without taking it in and desiring to obey it. You can memorize every word that Jesus ever taught. You could go to church every Sunday that the doors are open and never having actually kept His words. You may know what He said, but there is a difference between simply knowing what He said and keeping His words, which is an embracing into yourself that results in obedience. It's believing what uh, Peter said of Jesus in John 6. When everybody else leaves, and Jesus looks at the twelve and said, you guys going to leave too? And Peter says, where can we go? You're the only one that have the words of eternal life. I think he says just the words of life, actually. Just the words of life. This is an understanding that what you're teaching, Jesus, the precepts that you're laying out, the the commands that you give us, this isn't just some kind of uh, um, outward obedience we're supposed to have. We, We cling to these things as the words of life. 
You know, people call Christianity restrictive because of the words of Jesus. Jesus gave us things that we're not supposed to do. There is a restrictive nature to our obedience. Tim Keller, who passed away just a few weeks ago, uh, in his book, The Reason for God, he, he's talking about the, the people that say that Christianity is narrow-minded. You know, we just, we're so narrow-minded and restrictive, and there's no freedom in Christianity. He uses this illustration and has stuck with me, and I've used it before, and it means so much. If there is a fish in a pond, someone who says, you know what, I, I just think we are restricting that fish by keeping him in that water. If we would just get that fish out of the water and get it up on dry ground to be free, it would be able to accomplish so much more. So we scoop out that fish out of the water, we toss it up on land, we watch it flop around a little bit, and we watch it die. Yes, it was no longer restricted by the water, but it was made to live in the water. It was made to thrive in the water. Outside of the water, the fish does not thrive. God has made human beings to thrive inside of His restrictive commands. He doesn't give us the commands to be hard on us or to be mean on us. He gives them out of love. He says, I know how I made you and I know how you'll thrive. You'll thrive within these parameters. And if you go over those parameters, you're going to flop around and die. Don't do it. When it talks about keeping these words, it means believing that the words of Jesus are life. Not not keeping freedom from us, but delivering us freedom. Allowing us to thrive. It's embracing the words of Christ that then causes us to obey those words because we know those words are life. So all that the Father gives to the Son will embrace His gospel and obey His commands. Then lastly, the last mark of the elect that Jesus says here is that they have received that Christ is from God. He prays this in verse 8. They have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. This is to say that we believe Jesus has a divine nature. We believe that Jesus came from God and that Jesus himself is God, that he has a divine nature. John writes about this in John chapter 1. Where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. To believe that Jesus has been sent by the Father is to believe John 1, 1 through 4. It's to believe that Jesus is the Word. And in the beginning, He was with God and He was God. And then it's to believe not only in the divine nature of God, but the divine mission of Jesus. That Jesus has a divine mission to accomplish. John writes about this in verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
So it's the divine, mission, the, 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 the divine nature of, of Jesus being God, the Son of God sent from God, and it's understanding that He has come to earth with a divine mission. So all those that the Father gives the Son embraces the divinity of Christ and embraces the mission of God in Christ Jesus. It is truly to see Jesus as the glory of God like he prayed earlier, Jesus' own words. Here, when it says to see, that's to receive. When it says to know, that's to believe. It is receiving and believing that Jesus is God and he has come with a divine mission to save the world. It is impossible for us to look at human beings and know who are the ones that the Father has given to the Son. It's impossible. We can't do that. I am not the Father and I did not choose them. I am not the Son and they were not given to me. And it is not my job to run around trying to figure out who the elect are. But according to this prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17, I do know this, that eventually all four of these markers, all four of these marks will apply to those that the Father has given to the Son. I know this. I know that all those that the Father has given the Son will have the name of God manifested to them through Jesus Christ. I do know that the elect of God will be taken out of the world and set apart. I do know that they will embrace the word of the gospel and obey the precepts taught by Jesus. And I do know that they will receive Jesus as divine and believe that he was sent by the Father with a divine mission. These four things, according to Jesus' prayer, will happen to all the Father gives the Son. And John 6.37, Jesus says this, And all that the Father gives me comes to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Jesus knows all that the Father gives me I will do the Father's work on their behalf and they will come to me. It may be at four years old. It may be at 104 years old. But all that the Father gives the Son, these four things will happen. They will get God's name manifested to them. They will be taken out of the world. They will embrace the gospel and, taught, and the precepts taught by Jesus. And they will receive Jesus as divine and believe that he has come to fulfill God's divine mission. Now, some people hear this and they get depressed. Because they say something like this. Well, then what's the point of evangelism if all the Father has given to the Son is going to come to the Son? What's the point? Number one, I would say Jesus tells us to evangelize. So whether you can figure out why or not, 
He tells us to go and make disciples of all the nations. You a follower of Jesus? Obey. Even if you ain't got it figured out, obey. I would argue we don't all have it figured out. I'm just saying, obey. But number two, this actually is supposed to do the very opposite of make you depressed. It's supposed to give you great hope. Here's why. Because all of us know somebody in our family or in our friend group or in our lives that do not know Jesus. They do not love Jesus. They reject Jesus. And it has burdened you. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you want God leaving it all up to them? Do you want God saying, you know what, I'm just going to let this person decide. I'm going to let this person do what they will. I'm going to let this person have themselves. And let's see if they ever come to me. The Bible makes it very clear what the nature of man is apart from regeneration. They ain't coming to Jesus, church. No one will come. No one will come. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. There is none righteous, no, no, not one. There is none who do good. So we want a person in that state being the ultimate determiner of salvation. I would argue, no. If that was the case, we wouldn't be here today, church. Because you have not been saved by your will. You have been not been saved by your power. You have not been saved by blood, the will of man, or the will of the flesh, but the will of God. That's why you have been saved, church. That is the determining factor. Now, here's why this gives us hope. Because someone who has rejected Jesus their entire life is now laying on their deathbed. And the moment before they breathe their last breath with nobody else in the room, they cry out, Jesus, save me. And they belong to God. So we don't lose hope. We don't lose hope. Because there's always God's plan that we play for. There's always hope. That God's going to wake this person up and this person's going to get saved. So we, we keep praying for them. And, and isn't it funny that we do not pray like this? Uh, I, I can't remember who it was. I think it was Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, everyone prays believing in the sovereignty of God over salvation. Because no one prays like this. Dear Lord, I just want you to convict and work and then I want you to back off of my loved one and leave them to their to themselves and let them decide for themselves whether or not they want you how do we pray for our lost people dear Jesus save my brother save my child save my friend well wait a minute right But we know, intrinsically, we know the only way that this lost person who hates God is going to change is if God changes them. And that is the hope we have in God's sovereignty over salvation. Lost people will get saved, church. 
God is gathering people up from every tribe and every language and every group and every nation all over the world so that on the earth there will be billions and billions and billions of people, throngs of people in all languages from all over the world, worshiping Jesus. Why? Because God is sovereign over salvation. What does Jonah say after it's all said and done with Jonah? He goes on his rebellious trip. By the way, talk about the sovereignty of God. Jonah's going to go preach to Nineveh. Like he tries to rebel. He tries to run. And God's like, no, I'm God. You're not. You're going to go preach to Nineveh. Then he goes and preaches to Nineveh. They all repent and he's ticked off about it. And he goes and sits under a tree and pouts because God saves them because he knew that's what God does. And, and here's what happens at the end of the book? Here is the conclusion. Here is the, the headline of the story of Jonah. Salvation belongs to God. And aren't we glad for it? Because church, if salvation did not belong to God, then there is no one who has been chosen. There is no one who has been given to Jesus. Jesus is not revealing and manifesting eternal life to them. And we all die and go to hell. And no one is saved. But because God is gracious enough and he is benevolent enough and he is merciful enough, he will save people for himself. And you don't know who that is. You don't know how he's going to do it, when he's going to do it and what he's going to do. So we obey and we preach the gospel and we share the gospel. We leave the, the, the harvest to the Lord. He's the Lord of the harvest. We leave that to him and we obey. Knowing God's word cannot return void. I used to get really depressed when I'd share the gospel because I'd walk away and go, oh, if I just would have said this, they would have got saved. Tell me you ain't thought that. Or you've talked to somebody, you're like, oh, if I just would have said those words, I would have got them. Think about what you're saying. I would have got them. No, you tell them the gospel and the Lord is going to work in their lives and the Lord is going to do what he wants in their lives. And we can obey. It frees us up to obey. If God was not sovereign over salvation, I'd be hopeless. But because he is sovereign over salvation, I know how the story ends. And it is filled on a new earth with people who love Jesus that have these four markers in their life.